0: The following podcast contains adult content, explicit language and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People telling me, you're going to go die and go to hell. Or, I'm going to be
1: blown. I'm going to bring that one more on. Where's
2: emergency? Oh, this is Katie. we are pretty one look.
1: What's the no, problem? Send the police! And he goes, don't be a hero, mate. And I said, I'm not trying to be a hero, but the police are coming. One in the chest, one in the hip.
0: Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle.
1: I, I would have nailed Carl Williams' hands to a coffee table and just, and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom liberal a
2: cherub face, cherub face little boy who who who, 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 who who's light would be. I harm someone, it's damning. Kill someone, there'd be an enormous amount, uh, it, especially at first, an enormous amount of, 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 of horror, guilt remorse afterwards.
0: But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Patricia Walsh and Marianne Wysocki went to Cape Cod for a weekend getaway on January 24th, 1969. When they didn't return home afterwards, their friends and family were very concerned. But authorities initially thought the girls had just taken off travelling on an adventure, as many young people were doing at the time.
2: The police had also failed to investigate the disappearance of other young women in the area for the same reason they didn't realise until it was too late that they had a serial killer on their hands. All the murdered young women were last seen with 24-year-old carpenter, ladies' man and massive drug pig, Tony Costa.
0: This is part one of the Cape Cod serial killer.
2: Hi, I'm Barney Black.
0: And I'm Tara Saraband, And
2: this is Bloody Murder.
0: We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser-known crime stories from Australia
2: and indeed around the globe.
0: Being a comedy true crime podcast means that we use dark humour as a means to tell horrifying stories, but never at the expense of the victims or their loved ones.
2: If you think humour has no business being associated with tragedy, then Bloody Murder may not be the podcast for you.
0: As with the last few weeks, we're recording this episode remotely in our isopods in our respective Melbourne homes, so apologies if we sound a little different.
2: I'm starting to think Tara's maybe a fictional character played by various actors. You know, like Batman, the Queen or the Pope.
0: Oh, I can assure you I am very real, Barney. More's the pity. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons.
2: We've had quite a few new ones join our new fancy Patreon program, which we will thank individually after our story.
0: If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com.
2: As a patron, you have access to loads of other episodes, including our itchy and Stockholm syndrome-inducing first season and ad-free versions of all our regular episodes.
0: As well as exclusive, uncensored, patron-only monthly episodes where I forget about all the times I've been told women aren't supposed to swear.
2: Levels above $5 receive free stickers and handmade Barney badges.
0: And of course, you're automatically entered into the draw for our monthly giveaways.
2: All right, Tara, let's get murdery. In
0: 1969, Provincetown, on the extreme tip of Cape Cod in Massachusetts, was a peaceful, old-fashioned harbour town. During the summer, it was overrun by tourists and had a busy carnival atmosphere. Off-season, it was more like a small town where everyone knew each other and the crime rate was very low. In the late 1960s, this scenic seaside area became very popular with people leading alternative lifestyles.
2: You mean it was infested with hippies and freaks?
0: Yes, I do, Barney. Suffice to say, there was a lot of body painting going on. On Friday, January 24th, 1969, schoolteacher Patricia Walsh called in sick at work. She and her friend, college student Marianne Wysoki, wanted to escape the daily grind of their lives in Providence, Rhode Island and head out on a cheeky weekend getaway.
2: YOLO! The two
0: 23-year-old women packed a few things, jumped in Pat's beloved light blue VW Beetle and set out for Cape Cod. Pat and Marianne had been friends for many years. They'd attended Classical High School together, which was a school for exceptional students. They also went to Rhode Island College together until Marianne dropped out after the first semester to work at a telephone company. They didn't see each other much after Pat finished her degree and got a teaching job, while Marianne went back to college in the hopes of becoming a teacher herself, but they had recently reconnected. Marianne and Pat arrived at a guest house in Cape Cod that afternoon and booked in for two nights accommodation. As their host, Mrs. Morton, showed them around the communal areas of the guest house, they bumped into a resident named Tony Costa and Mrs. Morton introduced them. Tony was a 24-year-old handyman and father of three who'd been staying at the guest house since his recent divorce. On Saturday morning, Mrs. Morton noticed a note written on a torn piece of brown paper bag pinned to the girl's door that said, "'Could you possibly give me a ride to Truro early in the morning?' The note was signed, Tony. The Truro he referenced was a remote area of Cape Cod, not the Truro in Adelaide, which was a dumping ground for the bodies of murder victims of serial killers Christopher Worrell and James Miller.
2: The Truro in Adelaide was also a remote area.
0: It was. I covered the Australian Truro serial murders on episode three.
2: Ah, episode three. We were so young and innocent back then.
0: (laughs) Well, we were pretty innocent. Just as an aside, if you're a young woman, it's best to avoid any place called Truro, regardless of what country it's in.
2: Good advice.
0: According to court records, in the early afternoon of that Saturday, Tony Costa was seen riding as a passenger in a light-coloured Volkswagen by a co-worker of his named Zacharias. Two girls were also in the Volkswagen and one of the girls was driving. Tony and Zacharias chatted for a bit, and Zacharias gave Tony his work paycheck. Then Tony and the young women drove off in the VW, heading in the direction of Truro. Later that afternoon, Pat and Marianne didn't show up to meet their friend Russell Norton, who had hitchhiked into Provincetown to hang out with them. Pat's VW was seen later that day, parked on a dirt road near the old, overgrown, creepy-as-fuck Truro Cemetery, which was a fair way out of town.
2: The next day, Mrs. Morton found a note pinned to the door of the girls' room at the guest house. It said, We are checking out. Thank you for your many kindnesses. And was signed, Mary Ann and Pat. This note was also written on a torn piece of brown paper bag, like the note Tony had left for the girls the previous morning. Mrs. Morton was surprised Pat and Mary Ann had left so early as she was expecting them to check out later in the day. When Mrs. Morton went into the room Pat and Marianne had stayed in, she found all their belongings were also gone. According to the book In His Garden by Leo Moore, Pat's long-term boyfriend, Bob Turbity, who had been travelling around California for the past few months, was due to meet up with Pat after the weekend. Clearly ahead of his time, Bob had gotten a Pat tattoo on his arm in her honour and was excited to show it to her.
0: It was in blue ink and it set him back a whopping $2. Those were the days. I know, $2 tats, man.
2: That's right. Pat and Bob had met in March the previous year. He had quickly become enamoured with the tall statuesque girl with the long brown hair. Soon after they met, he asked Pat to a Jefferson Airplane concert. She said yes and the rest was history.
0: Do you think he invited her by serenading her with their hit, Don't You Want Somebody to Love?
2: If he didn't, it was a wasted opportunity.
0: They also had another song called Rebump Babap Dum Dum.
2: I love that song. What's it about?
0: (laughs) I have no idea. I'm not even sure Jefferson Airplane knows.
2: (laughs) Pat had an apartment of her own but spent a lot of time with Bob at his place in Rhode Island. The two planned on getting married and having a family together. Some teachers don't seem to like kids much but Pat loved them. When Bob couldn't get hold of Pat on the weekend or Monday afternoon after school, he began to worry. He called her dad, who hadn't heard from her since Thursday, when she told him she was going away for the weekend with Marianne. The fact Pat hadn't shown up for work on Monday or called in sick caused even more alarm. Pat's
0: father learnt from Marianne's mum that they'd left Friday morning to spend the weekend in Cape Cod, and planned to meet up with Marianne's gentleman friend Russell there later on, on Saturday. Her dad spoke to the Massachusetts State Police, but they didn't have any record of a car accident involving Pat's light blue VW. The next day he lodged a missing persons report. Bob went to Pat's apartment feeling pretty confident that he'd see her there and she'd have a good reason for not showing up at work and not being home earlier. But when he got to her place, there was no sign of Pat. Marianne's gentleman friend Russell had gone to Provincetown on Saturday afternoon to meet the girls as arranged, but he couldn't find them. He was surprised as it was the middle of winter and off-season and the area was so quiet that you could usually find people quite easily. He returned home Sunday afternoon and called Marianne's mother, who hadn't heard from her since the Thursday before. Pat's boyfriend Bob also went to Provincetown to look for Pat and mary taking photos of them with him and asking around the shops, cafes, guest houses and bars, but he had no luck tracking them down. After speaking to the province town police, Bob was frustrated that they weren't taking the girls' disappearance seriously and had told him that they'd probably just run off somewhere and would show up when they felt like it.
2: It was even suggested they were secret lesbian lovers who had ran away together.
0: Of course it was. The authorities' blasé attitude to Pat and Marianne's disappearance may have stemmed from the fact that a lot of young people took off travelling in the late 1960s.
2: Peace, love and hitchhiking.
0: And body painting. It turned out Pat and Marianne were not the only young women who'd gone missing from Provincetown recently. 18-year-old Sydney Monzen had vanished from the area on May 25, 1968. Sydney was a friendly and pretty girl with long dark hair, like Pat and Marianne, who'd gone out and had just never come home again. She was working for a Provincetown A&P grocery store at the time. She rode her bike to work one day and left it leaning against the store. She was never seen again. Her sister Linda is quoted in the book In His Garden about the last time she saw Sydney, saying... I was coming out of the gate. Sydney was standing on top of the hill beside a car, calling to me. She was terribly upset and she wanted me to go up there and talk to her. I was in a hurry and said I'd see her later. Then Sydney got into the car. An hour later, Linda had tried to find Sydney but she couldn't locate her. She looked for her for a week but just couldn't find her anywhere. Eventually their mother reported Sydney missing. She was last seen with none other than Tony Costa, who had been in the car with her. She left behind all of her belongings her makeup, clothes, and medication for chronic heart palpitations.
2: Another local girl, 17 year old Susan Perry, had also gone missing. She had vanished from the area in early September 1968. Like many people in Cape Cod, her father was a fisherman. Her parents were divorced and neither of them ever reported their daughter missing, assuming she just wandered off to live in another town. No wonder Provincetown had such a low crime rate, Tara. They didn't acknowledge missing people.
0: I know, right?
2: A week before Susan Perry vanished, she had moved in with her new boyfriend. You'll never guess who he was. JFK. No, this was after the grassy knoll incident.
0: Robert Kennedy.
2: No, he'd been assassinated the year before by a Palestinian terrorist, I believe.
0: Or had he?
2: Yeah, no, he had.
0: Zombie Robert Kennedy?
2: You're not even trying now, Tara.
0: (laughs) Okay, okay, Tony Costa.
2: Yes, we have a winner. When asked about Susan, Tony told her friends she'd gone to Mexico. So we should probably hear more about this suspicious dude, Tony Costa, right? Right. He was born on August 2nd, 1944, to parents who had been married for 16 years. According to an article written by Cape Cod resident and famous author, Kurt Vonnegut, for Life magazine, his father was in the Navy and was a hero off New Guinea in the Second World War. He saved another sailor who was drowning. Then he banged his head on a coral outcrop and died. Tony has a newspaper clipping about this and he proudly showed them around. His father's life was insured for $10,000. Part of this treasure was put into a trust for Tony by his mother, who remarried after a while. After she remarried, Tony's mother had another son, who was two years his junior. Tony did well in junior high and was so adept at mathematics that from the age of 12, he handled the bookkeeping and tax returns for his stepfather's business. So he sounds like a good boy so far, doesn't he? Well, he wasn't.
0: In November 1961, 16-year-old Tony broke into his neighbor's house in Somerville, Massachusetts. Their 14-year-old daughter woke up to find Tony bending over her bed. Fortunately, he ran away when she started screaming. Three days later, he went back and attacked the girl. He tried to kidnap her and was dragging her down the stairs of her apartment building when neighbours intervened and rescued her. Tony was convicted of burglary and assault on January 4th, 1962. He received a one-year suspended sentence.
2: Whoa, they probably told the judge he was good at math.
0: Yeah, that would have done it. Boys will be boys. The family moved to Provincetown when Tony was an 18-year-old senior in high school. This was not good news to the cats in the area,
2: who started
0: to go missing.
2: Not the cats.
0: I know, the kitty cats. Quick, hug your little cat now.
2: We'll be back with more of the Cape Cod serial killer after this.
1: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
0: <laughs> All right, Bonnie. It's time for you to tell me what time it is.
2: It's true crime nerd time. Whee! Yay! True crime nerd time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV, series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Are you itchy, Tara? You can record your voice...
0: <laughs> I like that I can give you the finger. I over got Scott. a rude
2: finger right in the face. It was like about this big.
0: <laughs> That's because you have such a big monitor.
2: <laughs> you, can re- you can record your voice. Just do it on your phone. We'll play it or we'll write it and we'll read it out. And we have one here from Penny Souza. And she writes Hello, Tara and Barney. I'm writing to suggest Murder in Matheny, the April Holly story, a book by Monty Sands. In 1988, 11-year-old April Holly was raped and murdered in her home in Matheny Tracks, a small community outside the Tullery city limits. She was a sweet, innocent girl who suffered unimaginable horrors at the hands of a monster. I went to school with her older sister, and my younger sister was in April's class. I can still see the house where the crime occurred from my front porch. Hey baby, keep kicking against the pricks, Penny. Well, thanks, Penny. I actually found this written by the author about the book. In 1992, while working for the Tulare County Probation Department, assigned to the county courthouse, I first ran across copies of transcripts of taped interviews with a murder suspect accused of murdering an 11-year-old girl. The case involved rape, sodomy and brutal damage to the victim. The transcripts were captivating. It would take a decade and the Freedom of Information Act before I gave thought to writing about April's murder. The thought would eventually give me reason to question my sanity. I had been doing research on April's death for several months. Death certificates, birth certificates, old newspaper articles, etc. The work was interesting but often tedious and boring labour. The process of compiling data is very impersonal and has no life of its own. Early in 2002, I decided to visit April's grave. I did my research prior to visiting the cemetery. April was located in the southeast section marker 544. My daughter accompanied me for the purpose of photographing the site. We wandered around the approximate location with negative results and decided to separate to cover more territory. After a short time, she, she-, she yelled out, Dad, here she is! My knees almost buckled. I was shocked. What was going on? I didn't move for a moment. It dawned on me slowly. April was no longer just an interesting story, set in black and white print. April was a person who had walked this earth. The steps I took towards the marker were small and staggered. I looked down at the small marker bearing her name, pinched in tightly between two other headstones. April Holly, April 24th, 1977 to December 3rd, 1988. You cannot etch in stone, here lies a young child taken early in her life by someone who decided she did not need to live any longer. As I was getting ready to leave the cemetery, a couple of thoughts crossed my mind as I glanced down at the headstone one last time. On one side lay an uncle, almost unknown to her. The other side, a complete unknown. April would be forever alone. The second thought was to resolve to tell her story to the best of my ability. Hmm, that's interesting, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah. How
2: how these things affect the people that write write about them.
0: Oh, well, they would have to spend so much time um, studying all the documents and, and, you know, everything about the case that you're living and breathing it, yeah.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, the longest we spend is a few weeks on a a story and uh, it gets into your head and and sometimes I'm just glad to see the back of it.
0: I'm often glad to see the back of it, (laughs) especially sexual status. Yeah,
2: the Van Crevel story. The Van Crevels, I was glad to see the back of them.
0: Ah, uh, Me too, but I still wonder if Belinda's going to like put out a $2,000 contract on us.
2: <laughs> yeah, and a hatchback.
0: <laughs> yeah, menthol smell and hatchback.
2: Well, thank you, Penny, for bringing that to our attention. That book is Murder in Matheny, the April Holly story by Monty Sands, the details of which will be in the show notes. Now, if you'd like to submit to True Crime Nerd Time, you probably want to rethink your life choices, but... <laughs> uh, but- Yeah, visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for instructions on how to contribute. If you're looking for something different, Murder Mile covers the untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders in London's West End. It's researched using the original police investigation files, it's presented as a dramatisation, and it focuses on the victims' lives in an honest, detailed, and sympathetic way. Murder Mile is about life, not lunatics. So if you love true crime stories about real murders by regular people in everyday places, then Murder Mile is just for you. Murder Mile was nominated one of the Best British True Crime Podcasts of 2018. So if you love things a little bit different, try Murder Mile.
0: So, uh, 2020, huh? Yep. Not exactly what we were hoping it would be, is it?
2: Not exactly, no.
0: Is everything going on in life and the way this year is panning out interfering with your happiness? It's a solid yes from me.
2: Is something stopping you from achieving your goals?
0: Are you lonely in isolation, possibly missing your friends or family?
2: Or perhaps all of this is just making the other stuff you have to deal with even harder.
0: We're both big believers in therapy, and there's no better time than now to take care of your mental health.
2: BetterHelp is there for you.
0: BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist that suits you.
2: You can connect in a safe and private online environment.
0: And you can start communicating in under 24 hours.
2: It's professional counselling that produces real results, not self-help.
0: You can send a message to your counsellor at any time.
2: You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions.
0: All without having to sit in a germy, uncomfortable waiting room.
2: Yuck! BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed.
0: It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available.
2: And it's a service you can access worldwide.
0: You'll be communicating with licensed professional counsellors who have a broad range of expertise and specialise in areas such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships and family conflicts.
2: What about planking?
0: Um, Well, I know that they have a specialist that that, um, specialises in owling and there's another one who can give you tips on taxidermy, but planking, I will need to actually send an email to find out about planking.
2: Well, regardless, anything you share is confidential.
0: It's convenient, professional and very affordable.
2: If you want to start living a happier life, connect with BetterHelp.
0: And as a Bloody Murder listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp, that's betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder.
2: Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health.
0: Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them access your needs and get matched with a counsellor you'll love.
2: And if you don't believe us, check out the dozens of positive testimonials on their website.
0: So visit betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. So that's betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder.
2: And now, more of the Cape Cod serial killer.
0: According to the TV show Born to Kill, Tony Costa was always considered a wash ashore. In other words, not a native of the area.
2: Yeah, Cape Cobb was the kind of place at the time where you had to be born there to be considered a native.
0: At high school, Tony was thought of as a bit of a weirdo and a loner by his classmates. When 18-year-old Tony started dating a 13-year-old girl named Avis, his classmates didn't find him any less of a weirdo. The two were married when Avis got pregnant soon after. So, yeah, he'd um, pick up his pregnant teenage wife from school after he graduated. That was a good look. Uh, Folks thought the age difference was a bit off even then. The couple ended up having three children together. In the Kurt Vonnegut Life magazine article, Avis is quoted as saying of Tony, He wanted a little girl. He was a little disappointed when the first child was a boy. When the second was a boy, he was really depressed. But when Nicole was born, he was overjoyed. He adores Nicole. Probably wanted to date her. In the research we did, Tony Costa was always described as being very handsome, as serial killers often seem to be.
2: Yeah, apparently Ted Bundy is super hot.
0: I know, right? Fuck off. Tony was six foot tall, he wore glasses, had thick dark hair, a moustache and sideburns. He kind of looked like if John Lennon and Ringo Starr had a baby with Dustin Hoffman. Oh, my loins! He,
2: his nose looked like a bowling ball in a sock.
0: Really? I wouldn't have said that personally. You know, you, you know we're going to get emails about that from people whose noses actually do look like a bowling ball in a sock.
2: <laughs> Andy loved wearing turtlenecks.
0: Oh, my God. That was a red flag right there, wasn't it? He also loved taxidermy. He bragged to others about how good he was at gutting and stuffing dead animals. At night, he'd roam the streets picking up roadkill, and if he didn't find any, he'd just kill some critters himself.
2: I remember wanting to be a taxidermist and a magician and a ventriloquist. My father was so disappointed in me.
0: (laughs) It's lucky he didn't live to see you become a podcaster. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Too far? As if all the things we've mentioned about Tony weren't enough already, he was also an aspiring poet who considered himself to be an intellectual. According to friends, he was very argumentative as well and just had to have the last word, which made him not too popular with people his own age. But kids younger than him saw him as some kind of legend and young girls thought he was deep and dreamy. Tony was king of the kids. He pretty much exclusively hung out with people younger than himself. He had a secret marijuana patch, which he grew near the creepy-as-fuck cemetery out in Truro, which never failed to impress them. He was also a massive drug pig who loved tripping, smoking weed and taking pills. He also dug shootin' speed and would sign off letters to friends, there's no hope without dope.
2: Shard on you, crazy diamond.
0: (laughs) In order to get himself as much hope as he could handle, on May 17, 1968, Tony burglarized a local doctor's office, stealing syringes and drugs valued at around $5,000. He stashed the drugs along with some weapons near his weed patch where he buried them for safekeeping. Although authorities were convinced it was Tony who had broken into the doctor's office, they didn't have enough evidence to prove it and he was never convicted of the crime. Tony worked on and off as a handyman. An ex-employer of his said that sometimes he'd come to his job, work two to three hours, and then take off for a few days. Uh, Other times he'd start the day off working well, then slow down, start laughing and talking to himself and just making really dumb mistakes.
2: Sounds like our podcasting. It
0: does, actually. It's particularly the uh, first year or two.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So the drugs he was taking were not performance-enhancing?
0: Quite the opposite. Tony loved the young ladies, and the young ladies at the time thought it was cool that he had his own weed patch. He'd often ask girls in the area to go out to Truro with him to see it.
2: Hey, baby. Want to see my wacky tobacco patch?
0: I have no interest in your weed patch. Be gone, Garfunkel. That's probably exactly how he seduced his teenage wife, Avis.
2: The book In His Garden by Leo Damore describes Avis as a tall girl with limp, stringy hair. Her face was pinched and pallid with hollows like scars under high cheekbones. A face from which all the juices of youth seemed to have dried up.
0: (laughs) It's not very complimentary.
2: It's not, not very nice at all. Avis later told police about Tony's kinks. His favourite way to make sweet, sweet love was to do it to an unresponsive girl. So he'd try to suffocate Avis until she passed out before doing the deed. Avis said, Once or twice he held a plastic bag over my face so I couldn't breathe. I'd get to the point where I'd start to fight for air and I'd rip it off and he'd get really mad. He also liked to play sexy time while either he or Avis hung from the ceiling. It sounded complicated and unpleasant. Avis was a mostly willing participant in his sex games, though she clearly found them exhausting and unfulfilling. She said their marriage started off well, tailed off towards the end, and the less said about the middle, the better.
0: <laughs> no, she didn't.
2: <laughs> well, she she actually said, Tony changed after he started on drugs. I think he's a schizophrenic, because when he got mad, really mad, and showed any kind of violence, he was like a different person. But he got over it fast. Then he wouldn't admit that he'd ever been sore. If Tony thought he was right in an argument and someone disagreed, he'd flip. He never admitted he was ever wrong about anything.
0: I can see why he'd have to marry someone who was in their early teens.
2: Yeah, it didn't work out. By August 1968, Avis and Tony were divorced.
0: So he's kinky and he's kooky, mysterious and spooky. But if you'd ask the kids in Provincetown at the time if he was altogether ooky... They would have said no.
2: He had lots of teenage friends who considered him super groovy and a real cool cat.
0: (laughs) Hey, all you cool cats and kittens.
2: (laughs) Hey, baby. This is another excerpt from Kurt Vonnegut's Life magazine article. My 19-year-old daughter, Edith, knows Tony Costa. She met him during a crazy summer she spent on her own in Provincetown. Knew him well enough to receive and decline an invitation he evidently extended to many girls come and see my marijuana patch hey baby hey baby if tony really is a murderer it is a surprise to edith she never suspected it she later said if tony is a murderer then anybody could be a murderer the encyclopedia of modern serial killers by michael newton noted that on the 25th of september 1968 Tony Costa was picked up for failure to pay child support and held in custody until November 8th. To reduce his sentence, he knocked on drug dealers in the area.
0: Yeah, he didn't need drug dealers anymore because he'd just nicked the five grand worth of drugs from the doctor's office. One of the drug dealers he dobbed in was a guy named Javon Utter who was going to be bringing a large shipment of drugs to Tony's ex-wife Avis's house. The cops pulled Jay over, heading into town. When they took apart his VW, because he drives one too, they found drugs in the wheel covers and under the back seats. It was one of the biggest busts in the area's history and got Tony set free almost six months before he was due to be released. Soon after he got out, Tony left town, as he regularly did, and started hanging out with a young woman named Christine Gallant in New York. She was 19 years old and worked as a library assistant at Columbia University. On the weekend of November 23rd, while Tony was in New York, Christine was found dead in her apartment. She drowned in the bath after an overdose of barbiturates. Police at the time dismissed her death as a suicide. Now getting back to Pat and Marianne. On Wednesday, January 29th, which is a few days after their disappearance, Tony asked a service station owner what he would charge to paint the Volkswagen some exotic colour.
2: Persimmon, perhaps?
0: I think he's more of a framboise man.
2: Maybe jacaranda.
0: Maybe. On Sunday, February 2nd, a witness saw Pat Walsh's light blue Volkswagen parked about 30 feet inside a wooded area in Truro. That day, Tony asked two friends to go to Boston with him. He told them that he had a car parked out in Truro that they could travel there in. All three went to the wooded area where the car was parked and from there drove to Boston in Pat's Volkswagen. Tony told his mates he'd been given the car by two girls who went to Canada. In Boston, Tony asked around trying to find someone to sell him a fake driver's licence, registration and bill of sale for the VW. He also offered to sell two friends a 22 calibre pistol, which he said was buried in the woods in Truro, along with all of his other precious things. On February 7th, Tony popped up in Vermont, where he rented a parking space for Pat's VW. He also tried to get it registered in his name. He'd removed the Rhode Island number plates, which were later found hidden under a rubber mat inside the car. Tony called the Provincetown police from Vermont. His mother had told him that they were asking around about him. He told them that he'd met Pat and Marianne at the guest house and he'd had drinks with the girls that night in a bar. During this chat, he claimed that Pat had told him she was pregnant and needed an abortion. He said she'd come to Provincetown to get money for it and had a date with a guy named Russell the next morning who was hitching in. The three of them were then apparently going to LA to see a guy named Bob who would help get the abortion. The next morning, he said he'd seen them when they drove him to a construction site to pick up his paycheck, and he said afterwards they drove off towards Hyannis. When the police told Pat's boyfriend, Bob Turbity, this story, he was suitably appalled. I mean, he was Bob, though he noted that Tony must have at least spoken to the girls a little to know about the existence of himself and Russell. He told the police that not only was Pat on the pill for birth control but she was also super keen to have kids and wouldn't have been planning an abortion or probably talking about it to strangers in bars.
2: On February 8th when Mrs Morton looked into the room Tony had been renting from her in the guest house she noticed several items of property left behind. There was a length of rope with red stains on it and mud covered work boots which also had red stains on them. He had also left a mustard turtleneck, mm. a sweater belonging to Pat, and a hairdryer which belonged to Mary-Anne. Now Mary-Anne was a real hair bear and washed her long, dark hair every single day. Much
0: like yourself, Barney.
2: Mary-Anne and my hirsute self would never have left a hairdryer behind. In light of recent developments, search teams were organised to scour the remote area near the creepiest fuck Truro Cemetery where Pat's VW had been seen.
0: Late in the morning on an embankment near Old Proprietor's Road, two members of the search team noticed a depression in the ground around four feet by two feet, which had sunk down several inches. Some green cloth was sticking out of the soil. Using a pick to break through the frost to get to the sandy soil, they pulled on the cloth. When they'd shaken the soil off, they realised they were holding a cloth army duffel bag. Then the smell hit them. It was a sweet smell of death and decay. Digging further, choking on the stench, police discovered the body of a white female cut into eight pieces. Tune in next week to hear the shocking conclusion of the Cape Cod serial killer.
2: I can't wait. Tell me now. Oh, I can't. It would go forever
0: and people would press pause. No, Barney, you'll have to wait till next week. Fine.
2: Fine. I have but one question.
0: Yes, Barney?
2: What is Aussie As?
0: Aussie Az are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one?
2: Yes, I would.
0: So thanks to Devon for bringing this one to my attention. When electrician Greg Hamill went to bed last Sunday night, he wasn't expecting to end up the star of his own action movie, but that's exactly what happened. Hamo posted the CCTV footage of a ballsy theft at his home in Cairns to Facebook and it quickly went viral. His post reads, So my house was broken into last night while I was asleep again.
2: Again? What makes Hamo's place so attractive to burglars? Well,
0: probably his collection of priceless Fabergé eggs.
2: I know I have a few. Maybe he has a big vault of gold, jewels, and money he dives into like Scrooge McDuck.
0: Maybe uh, the post continues. They tried to steal my car, so I went for a ride. So at two twenty-one a.m., two thieves were filmed entering Hamo's house through his front door and stealing his car keys. Hamo told the TV show Sunrise. Oh, I was in bed and I heard the roller door lifting up, so I jumped straight out of bed, sprinted down the hallway and jumped onto the ute. The footage shows Hamo clad only in his boxes, in all his freshly woken up action hero glory, leaping onto the back of his white ute as the ute-coveting thieves sped out of his driveway. Hamo said, oh, I was thinking, I'm going to get you. You're not going to take my ute. As soon as they started speeding really quickly and trying to throw me out of the car, I started getting scared, eh? I had to lay down at one point as the ute was going so fucking fast. The joyride lasted about 20 minutes and they probably hit speeds of 200 kilometres an hour with me in the back. So that's like 120 miles an hour. That's some uh, crazy Vin Diesel driving.
2: It's pretty quick.
0: Oh, it was a pretty heated discussion while they drove crazily around the suburbs, he posted. They kept telling me to jump and I kept trying to break the window. They pulled over a couple of times where one tried to stab me and I had to kick him away. Then they'd take off again, swerving and trying to throw me. Between yelling at them, kneeing and punching the driver's side window, dodging them trying to stab me and throwing stuff, we came to an agreement where they'd ditch the car and bolt and none of us would get hurt. Regretting their life choices for trying to steal from Action Man, the thieves eventually abandoned the ute in Menorah and were later arrested. So the failed Ute stealers are men aged 19 and 20 who are both from Townsville in far north Queensland. They'd been on quite a crime spree recently and appeared in the Cairns Magistrates' Court charged with a total of 37 charges between them. Whoa! So yeah, don't fuck with a tradie's Ute if you know what's good for you. They got a flight. I reckon if Hamo had been well-rested and drunk his coffee before all this went down, those two guys would be lucky to be alive. What would you do if you heard the roller door opening and someone trying to steal your car, Barney?
2: Well, I'd strap on my jetpack and fight them from the sky.
0: <laughs> I am very much enjoying picturing that in my head. Thank you. Uh,
2: that's all right.
0: <sighs> well, this brings us to the end of the episode.
2: But before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took the time to write us some good reviews.
0: And when we say people, we mean person. So thank you to Double Extra Large Historian who wrote, What an awesome podcast. The hosts are the best. I look forward to the next episode. Keep them coming. The hosts really have the Australian accent down.
2: Oh, thanks, mate. Well, oh, thanks, Cobber.
0: I know. I I generally, uh, I generally just communicate with a series of clicks and wiggles. But um, but yeah, I think Australian is our best accent that we do. We'd also like to thank our Facebook moderating team.
2: We love our patrons, Tara, and in an attempt to show them how much we do, we're holding monthly giveaways.
0: This month we have a special prize. So thanks to Studio, we're giving away some Fem Studio wireless earbuds.
2: Those Scandinavian geniuses at Studio have done it again with its wireless design and minimalistic charging case. Fem is the perfect match for any podcasting adventure. They are splash, rain, sweat-proof. um, You
0: could probably cry in them.
2: You can cry in them, (laughs) and they hold about and they hold twenty hours of playtime, six hours in a single charge.
0: They're tears of joy, by the way.
2: Oh, they're tears of joy. Yeah, they're tears
0: of joy. FEM also introduces a four microphone system and new touch controls for an enhanced sound quality experience. It also features the latest Bluetooth 5.0 technology, compatible with iOS and Android, and up to 10 meters of range. 10 whole meters. What's that in feet? I don't know. Perfect for listening to murder stories. Murder me. stories, murder
2: stories, murder stories. <gasps> stories
1: murder, story. murder stories.
0: For Bloody Murder listeners, Studio are offering free worldwide shipping and 15% off with the code BLOODYMURDER15 at checkout. So if you'd like to take advantage of that offer, visit studio.com for details.
2: For a chance to win a pair of the fabulous Studio FM wireless earbuds, be a Bloody Murder patron at a level above $5. It's quite easy. (laughs) Now, we've had a bunch of new bloody legends join our Patreon program.
0: So thank you to Tammy Church.
2: Crystal Egerling,
0: Chelsea Galash,
2: Charles Hyatt,
0: John Miles,
2: and Karen Hodges. And she just upped her pledge, so thank you very much, Karen. And the rest of you. And
0: the rest of you. All of you, indeed.
2: If you would like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink, because that's my thirsty voice. There's a PayPal donate button there, too. I've been Barney Black.
0: And I've been Tara Sarabin.
2: And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts or our Facebook page.
0: And rate and subscribe. It really does help us grow. Uh, you can follow us through our Facebook page or join our awesome Facebook group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod, And on Instagram, we're Bloody underscore Murder underscore podcast.
2: Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news galleries, more episodes, and links to our threadless merchandise. Coming soon, bloody murder socks, stuff your feet in them.
0: Put them them on the top, like outside of your feet, not inside your feet. Like not that kind of stuffing. No. So thanks for sticking around. Glad I cleared that up. Uh, We'll be back next week.
2: Goodbye and adios. And
0: keep kicking against the pricks. Hey, so I started a new job this week because my old job stopped yeah. existing.
2: Ah. A new
0: ISO job. And um, guess guess where I did my induction? At home. In bed with the dog lying on me. And guess what I will to my first shift? What? Pajama pants and a smelly T-shirt. It was awesome. Ah. It was my favourite first shift outfit ever.
2: Yeah, everything's coming up, Tara. <laughs>
0: What you mean? I get really to be as slovenly as I want at all times now.
2: <laughs> well, I barely left the house in the last week.
0: I know, but how is that different?
2: Well, yeah, I, I don't know. Laszlo won't sit on his fifty-dollar cat sofa. Does
0: it keep you up at night with worry, like how can I make him sit on his expensive cat sofa?
2: <sighs> no, I'm just. I don't know. It's a decorative piece. It's you know, it's not made to be sat on.
0: Does he play his um, $500 cat piano that you bought him?
2: No, he doesn't play that either. But it's
0: a perfect model of the one Liberace used to use, complete with a small chandelier.
2: I've got to walk down the shop now. Why? To get some beer. Ah.
0: I know, it's not like the olden days. Like, did you get sent down the shop by your folks with a note? I remember going to the bottle shop from about the age of 11 with a note from my mum.
2: Oh, I was never sent to the bottle shop. I was only sent down to the milk bar to get bags, cigarettes, with a note. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, I used to get. She liked to drink stout, which is like Guinness. And I'd go oh, there what? with a note. I always felt embarrassed.
2: Yeah. Well. I should. And how be. do you feel now? Sorry. How do you feel now? Oh,
0: still embarrassed, but for different reasons.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty embarrassed most of the time. <laughs> then I get sleepy and then a little itchy. And then I get hungry.
0: Yeah, sometimes I'm hungry and sleepy. You always ask me uh, if I'm itchy. But I never agree. I, I do. Agree. I never agree.
2: Well, you know, that's a personal thing. My itchy. You know, like it's, like, it's like when I make myself something to eat, like a sandwich or something, and I go back to sit on the couch, and my girlfriend's looking at what I'm going to eat. You know, she's looking at it looking at my sandwich and I cover it up and I say, this is a private sandwich, uh, this is private food, I don't look at me while I'm eating." So do you, don't look at my in food. this scenario,
0: do you offer to make her one too or do you just like show up with a sandwich and she's like, excuse me?
2: No, i say, do you want anything? she goes, go, no. And i say, I'm just going to make myself a quick sandwich. Oh,
0: she's a bit of a sandwich uh, looky-loo, bit of a sticky beak, huh?
2: Yeah, and and also when I make myself a dessert, I say, "Do you want some dessert?" And she goes, "No." And I make myself some ice cream. And, I don't know. I might um, put some uh, coffee syrup on it. Maybe some yogurt.
0: Yogurt on ice cream? You monster!
2: Yeah. What? Might be some Milo. Yeah. Milo. Yeah. A bit of Vegemite.
0: Oh, ew, dude, no. Tomato sauce.
2: Bit of tomato sauce on the ice cream. Tomato and sauce. And she looks now at it. Talking. And she looks at me like, hey, what what are you going to eat? And I say, that's a private dessert. It's not for your eyes.
0: I always want to know what people are eating too.
2: Yeah? Yeah. Well, it's I rude it's to look at other people's food. Huh? I think. What? I like to eat in private, over the sink. Oh, yeah,
0: I don't want people So I don't watching make much me. mess. I remember I used to supervise at one place and there was this older guy who worked there and he'd always come into the, if I was in the lunchroom eating, so I stopped doing it. Um, he'd come in and he'd lean all the way over and sort of stick his face pretty much in what I was eating and go, yum, that looks delicious, or something.
2: Oh, you'd say, fuck off, get out of my face. No, when
0: you're a supervisor, you're not allowed to say things like that, which is why I don't like being Mm. a supervisor much.
2: (laughs) What about rack-off? Can you say rack-off? That's what they used to say in the old Australian sitcoms. Rack-off.
0: Probably not. You're supposed to be, like, polite and everything all the time.
2: Rack-off, Tara.
0: <laughs> I say it to myself, but I don't say rack off. Uh, I mean I say fuck off. Get stuffed.
2: Back. You can say that, that's not a swear. What isn't? Get stuffed.
0: Get stuffed. Yeah, I like that. I remember saying that as a kid. I thought it was strong.
2: Suffering your jocks.
0: I remember suffering your jocks. What about um take a long walk off a short pier?
2: Hmm. Yeah. Suck my balls. No, no, let's. No,
0: no, let's say that. I remember some some like annoying like little yappy chihuahua girl at one of the schools I went to coming up to me for no reason, and just going, you know what they say? The best surprises come in small packages. Like me, I was just like, whatever. I bat planes out of the sky. I don't care.
2: Yeah, I'm gonna (laughs) drop kick you across the oval. You little
0: mole. <laughs> I was just like, why would you even bother saying that? But okay.
2: You fucking mole. You got
0: some cheese in your braces down there, love. Oh, you know what I get a lot? How's the weather up there? Fucking same as where it is down there, you stupid cunt. <laughs> <laughs> was it really vastly different in a number of inches? No. Cool. Well, I should let you go then. You probably want to, like, hold your children close and.
2: No, nah, I want to go to the bottle shop. <laughs> Hell no.
0: As their host, Mrs. Morton, showed them around the communal areas of the guest house, they bumped into a resident named Coney Toster.
2: Coney Toster.
0: <laughs> How can I get the word Tony wrong? Jesus Christ.
2: Uh, it's a complicated, exotic word, isn't it, Tony? Know. T- Tony. Coney.
0: Tony.
2: <laughs> Kony.
0: Tony.
2: I thought it was a boy having a scratch.
0: <laughs> that that out of context is quite interesting. You got a the, little scratch boy there, do you?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, Laslo, who still hasn't sat on his couch. Another local girl, seventeen-year-old 17 Stephen Perry. Stephen Perry, I could have been gone, <laughs> knowing how I made you feel. <laughs> <laughs> and it could have been gone.
0: Oh, that's a great song. Paul Shields sent me a message the other day vowing that he was going to send one of these in in the next week. It's been over a week. He lied.
2: Paul, pull your finger out, mate.
0: Yeah, pull your finger out. Finger in, Paul. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that's right.
0: Excellent. Blah, 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 fuckety, fuck, fuck, blah. Oh, Jazza. Oh, Kimo. Driving to swearing at his drive-thru, hitting each other, punching stuff, going to the supermarket and spitting on nuns. The end.
2: <laughs> I-, I think that was your best one, yeah.
0: <laughs> um, I did like a tongue click, so I should probably do it without the tongue click because the tongue click was probably a bad idea.
2: Or put more tongue clicks in.
0: <laughs> no, no, twin, twin. Should've been
2: gone, <laughs> knowing how I made you feel. And it should've been gone, after all your words of fear. <laughs> Using sonic pressure on my head since 1997.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands. Plus.